amazing my week has been. I've seen God answering prayers over and over again, and He continues to do that week after week. Now we're starting to get into the Christmas mood, and today our messages are going to be centered on Christmas portraits. And I'm going to be looking at the portrait of Mary this morning. And we ask some questions. We say, why Mary? If she wasn't a person of royalty, she didn't live in a palace, she didn't have any political position or power. Why Mary? She was a poor Galilean girl. When Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph were required by their Jewish law to actually bring an animal as a sacrifice. But they couldn't afford that, and so they brought two little birds instead. And why Mary? She wasn't especially educated, yet she was expected to bring up and teach the Son of God. How is she going to be able to do that? And she wasn't engaged to some man who was a king, but she was engaged to a carpenter. Why Mary? She was a poor teenage girl. There was nothing impressive about her. If she was to take her resume and go out there and try to apply for the position of the mother of the Son of God, like nobody would have given her a second thought. So why Mary? Like this is the incarnation. This is God becoming a human being. This isn't something that you just quickly make a decision on. You need to be very choosy in this. Now we don't know much about Mary. There isn't even a short biography of her. We don't know much about her life before Jesus was born. We don't even know much about Jesus' life leading up to the beginning of his ministry. But there is just so little about her. We don't know where and when she died. You can read about her in just a couple of minutes. Yet she makes these cameo appearances throughout Scripture, barely even having a speaking part. Why Mary? Now, some churches have tried to make Mary out to be more important than she really was. They will say things like perpetual virginity, that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, and she continued to be a virgin for the rest of her life. But we read in Scripture that Jesus had a visit from his mother and his brothers, so he obviously had siblings. Then some teach that Jesus wasn't the only one who was sinless, that Mary was as well. But look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mary was a sinner just like you and I. And then here's our big word for the day. A title that some have given to her is co-redemptress. And that means that they think that she plays an equal role to Jesus in the salvation process in, in saving us. But Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So we aren't to worship her. We're to give her honor, but we're not to worship her. We're not to make her equal with Jesus. And when we read about Mary, we realize that she didn't want that either. Luke chapters 1 and 2 tell us the most about Mary, and she's not even the main character in those two chapters. But it does provide us with a glimpse of her humility. So in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26, in the sixth month, that's of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, 
and she was pregnant at the time with who we know as John the Baptist. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, Nazareth wasn't the town where you would be proud to be from. A lot of people, when they're from Halifax, and someone asks them, where do you live? I live in Halifax. They're very proud to say that. But Nazareth was this puny little town, 10 acres, 300 people. They didn't even have the modern conveniences that you could have at that time. One of the disciples even said, but how can anything good come from Nazareth? Yet this is where Mary grew up, in this humble town. And I'm sure that God had to go to Google Maps so that the angel Gabriel could find Nazareth in the first place. But however he did it, he found the town, and he was there to deliver the message to Mary. So in verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So this is a beautiful verse, but the focus isn't so much on Mary's worthiness as it is on the fact that God's grace has been poured out on her. So in 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's a little bit nervous. She doesn't know if maybe she's receiving this visit from the angel because she's being corrected for something in her life. But then in 30, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So here's the question. Like, how did Mary find favor with God? And I think it was her humility. And that's not something that most people are interested in. If the topic of this message this morning was how to find you know, a portrait of power or a portrait of leadership, like, that's the type of thing that people go for. If you have a self-help book, nobody wants to learn how to be humble. They want to learn how to be a great leader. They want to learn how to be powerful in their community or maybe even a little more powerful in their home if they don't have that at the time. Yet in Scripture, we read, oh, there are all kinds of things about humility. But Matthew, I'll skip that one. Psalm 18, verse 27. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. And then in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And you can go on and on with scriptures like that that talk about the power and the necessity of humility. So Mary finds favor with God. And Gabriel says to her in verse 31, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now Mary, she knows what's happening here that she's heard all about the prophecies of the Messiah. They've been praying for years and years and centuries for the coming of the Messiah. So she realizes what this actually is. But she's totally surprised when she's being told that she is going to be the mother of this child. That's what's catching her off guard. 
Can you just imagine this overwhelmed young woman? She's still a teenager by most records, and she has received a visit from an angel telling her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. So her first question is reasonable in verse 34. But how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? But maybe some of you are even skeptical about a virgin birth. And you might find comfort in knowing that Mary had a few questions about this as well. She didn't know how this whole thing was going to all work out. But Gabriel simply goes up to her and reminds her what God has done in the past. And he's certainly going to act again in the future. In 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Remember your cousin Elizabeth? Remember the one who's been told that like, she's never going to have a child, she's too old, and all of that? Well, ta-da! She's got a child. She's pregnant at this very time. She's six months pregnant. I love Mary's simple statement of humble obedience in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. So Mary then went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, as we read, who was referred to, Excuse me, what we read that she said at that time is referred to as Mary's song. And the words of that song actually reveal how humble her heart is. She only talks about herself once or twice in that song, but constantly speaks about God, about his authority in the world. So here it is in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So in this passage, in this song of Mary, we see Mary's humility revealed. And humility is... First of all, having an accurate view of ourselves. And then it's also recognizing how big God is and having an accurate view of Him as well. And Mary understands that. She knows that in the Greek culture that she's living in, that to be a servant, that is the lowest thing that you can do. To actually surrender to someone in that way was the height of humiliation. Yet Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. She couldn't respond in any other way. It's so neat to watch the pride on a mother's face 
Like, I watched my mother's face every time someone said, your sons are so handsome, Dorothy. Actually, they didn't say that very often. It started early and then kind of died off. But whatever I would make a significant accomplishment, I could see the pride of my mother's face when I preached my first sermon in my first year at Bible college. My mother and father were there, and mom had tears in her eyes. And to this day, I feel it was because of pride. It might have been, whoa, this is so short and so awful. But, but then at our wedding, and, and again, just over and over again, you see the pride now. It starts with my daughter and son-in-law producing a grandchild, a great-grandchild for her, a grandchild for me. So we'd love to see that pride. Now, if anyone was going to display pride in their life, it was going to be Mary. Of all women, she had been chosen to be the mother of the Son of God. But we have all kinds of parents that annoy us when they say, well, my Johnny is so smart, this is what Johnny did. Or, or Susie, she's the greatest figure skater in the world, and they talk about Susie. That Mary is one who could have talked like that. She could have had a bumper sticker on her chariot that said, creator of the universe on board. Or she could have had another bumper sticker that said, my son created your smart child. She could have done anything like that. But she could have been so proud, yet she had an accurate view of herself. And she recognizes that she's not the main character in all of this. She is just the supporting cast. But pride is always sneaking up on us. Pride sneaks up and says, go ahead and buy it. You can pay for it later. Or pride says, go ahead and have that drink. You can handle it. Or go ahead and look at that image. You'll be able to handle it and keep control of that situation. Stop when you want. Pride makes us arrogant. It makes the teenager refuse to admit that he was wrong. It, it makes the worker refuse to say, I'm sorry. It keeps husbands and wives from being honest with one another. Romans 12.3 in the Living Bible says, Don't act big. Don't think you know it all. And that's exactly what God wants to say to us. I don't think you know everything because you are so far from knowing it all. And pride makes us critical. Like we can sit down and be critical about almost everything. And I want you to do an honest assessment and just ask other people in your life, like, am I a critical person? Like, do I constantly put things down? And listen to what they have to say. Maybe you have some decisions to make. Pride makes us insecure. It makes us think, you know, what if I try this and it fails? What if I try this and nobody supports me? Like, what if I get these feelings of rejection? Like somebody is going to reject us at some time. But sometimes we see insecurity in a person and we think it's humility. They're kind of looking lowly of themselves and we think it's humility, but it's really insecurity. They're self-conscious. Pride also makes me blind to my own weaknesses. It makes it difficult for me to see the areas in which I need to improve in my life. Ty Cobb, everybody knows Ty Cobb, the greatest batter in the history of Major League Baseball. But when he was 70 years of age, an interviewer asked him, if you were playing today, what would your batting average be? 
And his batting average as a professional was 367, which meant 3.67 times out of every 10 times at bat, he would get a hit and get on base. So he's thinking, okay, I bat 270, maybe 300. And the interviewer was kind of shocked that he would be that good. So he said, what is it? Is it because of the night games or the travel schedule or the AstroTurf or the new pitches that are coming out? And Tykov said, no, it's because I'm 70. He, he, didn't, he had so much pride that he didn't even follow the interviewer's line of thought, which was, put yourself as a 30-year-old in the game today. But he was full of pride. He didn't recognize his weaknesses. And pride fills us with presumptions. It makes me think that all the good things that are happening in my life are the result of something that I'm doing. And if something wrong happens, then I think it's totally unfair. I guess when I ask for the biggest dessert and get upset when somebody else gets a bigger piece of pie, that's actually pride, isn't it? I have to deal with that. But I like what Beth Moore wrote about pride. This is what she said. My name is Pride, and I'm a cheater. I will cheat you out of your God-given destiny and cause you to demand your own way. I will cheat you out of contentment because you deserve better than this. I will cheat you out of knowledge because you already know it all. I will cheat you out of healing because you refuse to admit when you're too full of me to forgive. I will cheat you out of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I will cheat you out of vision because you would rather look in the mirror than out the window. I will cheat you out of genuine friendship because nobody's ever going to know the real you. I will cheat you out of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I will cheat you out of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another feet on earth. I will cheat you out of God's glory because I'm convinced that you just want to seek your own. My name is Pride and I'm a cheater. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. He's basically saying that we need to have an accurate assessment of who we are in all of this. And that can lead to some painful truth at times. And we have a hard time recognizing that. We have a hard time recognizing our weaknesses. But Mary, she knows who she is. She knows that she is the Lord's servant. She's not insecure about that. We think of Mary, and we think when the angel approached her that she's probably going, Oh God, no, 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 please don't put this upon me. Like surely there's some other woman out there that's more qualified to fulfill this role that you're placing upon me. But she doesn't do that. Like she humbly accepts and obeys. John Ortberg wrote in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Humility is not trying to convince yourself or other people that you are somehow incompetent or unattractive. Humility, he writes, is not about beating yourself up. Let's just say you're out in the foyer, cafe area, after the service, and someone comes up to you and they pay you a compliment. They say, you look really nice today. Like, what do you do? Do you kind of put your head down, scuff your feet? Oh, not really. It's the, the new lights in this building. Or do you go to the opposite extreme and say, 
wow, let's talk about that revelation that you have. I think you're on the right track here. Or maybe you say, get behind me, Satan. You're just going to make my head swell. I'm going to have a problem with pride because of what you just said. Or do you do the right thing and you just simply say, thank you. That's what we do. That's humility. Ortberg writes that humility is thinking, excuse me, it's not thinking less of ourselves. Humility is thinking of ourselves less. So humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, trying to put ourselves down on a lower plane for some reason. Humility is just simply thinking of ourselves less. And somehow Mary has that going in her life. And she's got this confidence. She has this accurate view of herself. She knows she's small, but she realizes how big God is. She knows that God is going to work through her in her life. And that's why she could sing that song about the mighty acts of God and how he brings down rulers, how he keeps his promises. So her confidence was not self-confidence. It was God-confidence. Self-confidence just isn't going to work because it's going to let you down. It's going to disappoint you. But God-confidence, that's what leads to humility. And the Bible tells us that God exalts the humble. So Mary realizes that, and she trusts herself to God. She accepts the value that God has placed upon her. For confidence, we don't look within. We look to Him. We believe what He says about us. We look at the bigness of God and believe what He says about me. And it fills us with humility. But at the same time, it gives us great security. It gives us a power that enables us to do so much in this world. But before Mary sang that song, she actually received a great compliment from her cousin. And that's beginning in verse 42. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And the first words that Mary offered after she said that were, My soul glorifies the Lord. And what do you say in moments when you receive some glory in your life? Do you make certain that you turn that around and you glorify God? That's a test of your humility. Because the natural instinct is just to accept it all myself. I've done something through God's power that is amazing. And maybe some people say something positive about that. Like, I just turn that around. This is all to God's glory. It's what He has done. I love the Living Bible paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Like, why are you so puffed? Excuse me, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? If all you have is from God, why do you act as if you've accomplished something on your own? Why would you be proud? What have you done? Everything good comes from God. And that's so true. And who gave you your mind, your looks, your hands, your intelligence, your body? You would have nothing if it wasn't for God. God didn't allow you to decide where you would be born. He didn't allow you to decide who your parents would be, what your personality would be like. 
Did you choose those things? You didn't. So what do you have to be proud of? Everything good comes from God. And in your moments of glory, make certain that you pass that glory on to Him. But maybe that's why God chose Mary, because she did exactly that. She glorified Him. He probably chose her for the same reason He chose to be born in the manger, that He chose to be born to the parents that couldn't afford a proper sacrifice, to have a father as a carpenter, to have a bunch of fishermen as His first disciples. But He chose that because He can, and He chose Mary to be the mother because He can. That's how big God is. He chooses those small and those insignificant little things in this world to do amazing things with. And Mary understood that, and she knew where she fit in that Christmas story. In a few moments, we're going to look at a picture that's going to show us how small we are and how big God is. Scientists have said that in comparison to the Milky Way, excuse me, that our Milky Way, in comparison to the universe, is like a quarter in comparison to North America. Isn't that amazing? Just the universe that we live in, our Milky Way, our galaxy, in comparison to the rest of the world, is like a quarter compared to North America. And back in 1977, the spacecraft by the name of Voyager was launched into space, and it was sent on a one-way mission to take pictures of all the planets that had passed along the way. And after 13 years, 1990, it was finally at the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And it was traveling at 40,000 miles an hour away from our sun, so the scientists sent in a command for it to stop, to turn around, and take one more picture of what it had passed. Well, it couldn't take one picture because it was such a, a big area. It had to take 60 consecutive pictures. And those of you who are into modern technology will get something out of this. But each picture had 640,000 pixels in it. And it took five and a half hours of radio waves traveling at the speed of sound for each picture to get back to NASA. So when they finally got all those 60 pictures and they put them together in a composite photograph, they called it the pale blue dot. And this is what we see up here. Now this is magnified in a great way. And our new equipment audio stuff is actually showing it better than you can see it on the internet. But that is the Earth in comparison to just a portion of our galaxy. The next picture I had put in there, just to help us see a little more, has a circle on it. So that is the earth that we live on. And if that doesn't make us feel humble, if that doesn't make us feel small, then what else could make us humble? And one of the leading scientific voices of that day was an outspoken atheist astronomer named Carl Sagan. And this is what he wrote when he looked at that dot. Look again, he said. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've heard of, every human being who has ever lived, lived out their lives there. Every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, 
Every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a point of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena, and our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some purpose, position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceit than this distant image of our tiny world. And then he closes with, Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is not a hint that hope will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, I was right on board with him through most of what he had to say there when he talked about our inflated self-importance, when he talked about our vain conceit. But then I jumped off his ship at the end when he said that there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. You see, for God loved that pale blue dot so much that he sent his one and only son so that he would die for our salvation so that all who would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. But we are small, but God is gigantic. And God has given us value. He knows your name. The, the scriptures say that we are small in comparison to God, but God has every single number of hairs on our head counted. But 2,000 years ago, an angel came to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to a baby, and he will be the savior of the world. And she actually responded with humble obedience and said, I am the Lord's servant. So this morning, I want to give you a chance to respond in the same way, to just humbly say, God, I just can't get through this life on my own and get it right. I need you. I need your son. I need your spirit in my life. We're going to stand and sing a commitment song. If you've never given your life to Christ, we give you the opportunity to come to the front and share that decision. Or if you want to talk to me afterwards or contact me through email or anything, please do that. Don't go without making that decision.